Hello, good morning and welcome. I'm Tamsin Rose, the Senior Fellow for Health at Friends of Europe, and I'm your moderator for this webinar called Living with Spinal Muscular Atrophy, SMA, Spotlight on the Policy and Access Environment in Europe. And I'm delighted to be inviting several experts to be sharing their views with you this morning. But a webinar is an exchange and a dialogue, and you can engage with us by putting your questions and comments in the chat, and you'll find that on the bottom right of your screen. Just to let you know this event is being recorded. It's being recorded for reporting purposes and we may use parts of it for social media. The recording will be shared with all registered participants so you'll have a chance to use this material and look at it at later dates. Let me get started today but, and I have great pleasure in introducing our keynote speaker from the European Parliament. This is an MEP, Mr. Stelios Kimporopoulos. He's a member of the European Parliament from Greece and the EPP Group. We're delighted to have you with us here, Stelios. Please, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Oz. Um, it's my great pleasure to be here with you uh, to this uh, uh, event, uh, which focuses uh, on living uh, with SMA. Uh, and uh, I have been given uh, to be, I have been given the opportunity to be a part of it. Uh, dear coordinators and participants, I'm certain uh, that uh, all of the experts on SMA and the patients' organizations will present to us all of the efforts made across Europe uh, that have highly contributed to the fact that most European citizens have now access to treatments for SMA as it's obvious in the third policy and access tracker. As you may already know, I'm a supporter of a new bond screening for SMA, and I'm fighting to create a common mandatory list of uh, new bond screening for rare diseases in the EU, so that new bonds affected by SMA will be treated early enough in order to have the best outcome. However, Living with SMA myself is that more than being a patient. Having SMA in most cases means that someone is a quadriplegic child or adult, a child that needs to grow up in a family, attend the mainstream school of its neighbor, play and socialize in its community, as well as for the adults, after we take our medication, we have to face the real world, take the real bus to go to our real jobs, make real friends and start a real family. My point is that living conditions affect the quality of the patient's life more than the conditions of one's health. I can understand that the field of interest of health experts is the treatments. What I really cannot understand is why all of the patients' organizations haven't added data to the policy to demonstrate the real living conditions of their members. I wonder how many children with SMA live in institutions, how many attend the mainstream schools, how many are involved in extracurricular activities, how many adults have a university degree, how many of them are working? How many live independent 
or have already created a family. You may think that kind of statistics are already available for disabled people in general, in every European country. But SMA people share some unique attributes. Our physical impairment requires a high degree of everyday support. Children are affected and need families that are able and willing to provide that support while the enforcement of the state, of course. Our intelligence is not affected in any way. So we have to get educated, we have to work, we, we have to represent ourselves and our younger fellows SMA children in patient organizations. Also, our sexuality is not affected. And I haven't seen any patient organization addressing any of these important issues. I think it is a great opportunity to achieve all the above with the European Health Union and the new pharmaceutical strategy for Europe. On the one hand, we need a healthcare system that can accumulate the, the knowledge for patients and associations and the know-how of all these years on SME treatments and policies. On the other hand, we need the pharmaceutical strategy for Europe that aims to ensure Europe's supply of safe and affordable medicines to meet patients' needs and support the European pharmaceutical industry to remain an innovator and world leader. My goal is to show and explain to my colleagues in the European Parliament how to create a new and effective approach in SMA policies. Finally, I would like to remind you the phrase of the President, Mrs. Yushua von der Leyen, that I totally agree. We cannot wait for the end of the pandemic to repair and prepare for the future. We rebuild the foundations of a stronger European health union in which 27 candidates work together to detect, prepare, and respond collectively. The event is a nice occasion to change our perspective and promote the self-advocacy. Thank you for your attention. And uh, let's, let, thank you for, my, for the invitation to be here with you. Thank you very much, Stelius. And I, I like the fact that you encouraged us to look beyond just issues of treatment, but to look at quality of life and all aspects of people's lives as children and adults, including their families, their relationships, their sexuality, their uh, economic opportunities. So you've really given us a big vision, a bold vision of what quality of life could look like for SMA patients. I'm now going to introduce uh, two people who will present to us the new white paper on assessing the policy and access environment across European countries for SMA patients. And first, I'm going to bring in Dr. Nicole Gusset, who is the president of SMA Europe. And then we'll also bring in Stephen Kelly, who is the vice president for life sciences at Charles River Associates, who helped to put together this report. And this report, I think, is, is really setting out the baseline for the first time we've brought all of these elements together because Stellius said, why don't we have the data? We need to understand how many children, how many families are affected, and then what impact it has on their lives. And this report is a first attempt to put this information in one place because the basics we all know in policy, what gets measured 
is what gets done. So this is a first contribution to a conversation about improving quality of life and health outcomes for SMA patients. Let me start by inviting Nicole to tell us, can you please explain for the audience, if they're not specialists, what SMA is? Yes, thank you, Tasmin. Um, SMA is a progressive neuromuscular disease and it is typically diagnosed in children and causes muscles to weaken and deteriorate. And this can impact important development milestones as well as everyday activities such as walking and eating. But to complement this uh, rather uh, technical definition of SMA, I would like to share uh, a part of my story with you. I bring of, with me on the one hand, the perspective of a trained patient expert, but also I'm the mother of two children. And my firstborn Victoria was diagnosed with SMA, spinal muscular atrophy in 2011. So I know from first-hand experience how what we are talking today and what we, are what we were studying in this project is actually impacting the lives of those with SMA. And after an emotionally challenging way to my daughter's diagnosis, the day we received her diagnosis, my own world was breaking apart. It was despair, loss, hopelessness, but also lots of love. And SMA, these three letters were changing my life forever. I felt like I was drowning in an ocean, but my little daughter back then was my anchor. And in her, I found the strength to adapt to my new life and to move on. But SMA is a merciless, beast, especially without treatment. As soon as you adapt to a situation, it attacks and you need to readapt. It's a high psychological challenge for parents, but also for those living with SMA themselves. And living with SMA means continuous bereavement work. You fear loss and every cold, every infection can potentially be life-threatening. Thank, thank you, Nicole, This uh, for sharing your story and explaining just what the impact is on the, the quality of life of the families and the emotional impact of just how challenging it can be, but also reminding us of the love and the joy that can still exist, even though you have this constant challenge to deal with. So now let's move a little bit towards this, um, the project that we're going to be talking about, the white paper. Tell me why SMA Europe was so interested in participating in this project and, and this, the policy and access tracker. What difference do you think it would make? Let me first thank to all those who have contributed to this uh, amazing project. It's SMA Europe volunteers, it's our secretariat, our member organizations, but also, of course, the CRA team and Biogen. So SMA Europe, just to explain you very briefly, is a European umbrella patient organization. And United, we actually want to create a better world for all those affected by SMA. And we also want to improve access to diagnosis, optimal treatment and care for all patients in Europe. 
And in a pan-European patient expectation survey back in 2019, we actually saw that data confirmed our suspicions. So access to treatment in SMA varies a lot across different European countries, but also among SMA subpopulation. And this is still true. And this fact actually caused and still causing enormous distress in our community. Because, I mean, how would you feel if you know that there is a treatment that can stabilize your child, a treatment that can stabilize yourself, a treatment that can potentially save even the life of your child, and you cannot access it? It's just horrible for families in Europe, but of course also around the globe. And in SMA Europe, we know and we acknowledge that access to treatment is a complex construct. We know that data-driven approaches will help us and all the other stakeholders to unravel the existing challenges and hurdles in the pathway to access to medicines, but also to care. And we know that only together with other stakeholders, we can overcome these challenges. We can systematically collect the data needed and we can drive change on a political level. So I agree with what Tasman said in the beginning, the outcome of this project here represents a first step into that direction. It's a basis on which we all can start working on and SMA Europe is certainly committed to complement this also in future. Thank you, Nicole. Can, obviously, this is of key importance to the patient community, but could, can I ask you just to take us through some of the key elements in the white paper and indicate to us the special areas where the patient voice was so important and their messages come through? Yes, I, I can do that and I have some slides to illustrate um, this. So in this project, we have looked into the policy and access landscape for people living with SMA across 23 European countries, compared how they are performing on each of, diff of the different priority areas we have set. We highlighted the key challenges across this area assessed and called out best practices and developed policy recommendations that now can be used to advocate for change with policymakers. Next slide. This study actually identified five areas. You can see them here in the slide that are important to assess the environment surrounding SMA. Namely, these are political leadership and policy, healthcare system preparedness, diagnosis, then access pathways and access to treatment and care. On the next slide, you actually see results from our study and you, you see how in a way, frighteningly heterogeneous this picture is across Europe. 
it's uh, for me, it was really hard to to see and also to accept that this picture is still that fragmented. And I would really want to highlight here as you see the table now in front of you and here you see dots. It's dots in the table. It's green dots, it's yellow dots, it's red dots. In other reports, you see numbers, numbers in the statistics. But we always really keep, have to keep in mind and be very well aware that in reality, each dot that is not green here on this list is impacting people out there negatively. Each dot that is yellow or red is causing despair, hopelessness in people, in families who exactly know that there are green dots in other countries in Europe. And yeah, thank you. I think, uh, yeah, Tasmin, please. Thanks, Nicole. I was just going to remind everyone that they can find that inter really interesting graph on the website smatracker.eu. So if people want to go and look specifically about their country and follow it, there is an opportunity because it was it's hard to read on screen like that. And we know that people will want to be able to look at it and digest it. So thank you, Nicole, for setting that out for us and indicating that, yes, it looks like colors on a map, but every single color behind that is hundreds and thousands of patients and their families who want to have a better quality of life. And there you can see on screen the link to the report. And it's an interactive website, so you'll be able to go in and, and have a look at the specific country you're living in and to see whether it's green, yellow, or red. And obviously, the point of having all of this is to make sure that we achieve better results. So thank you to Nicole. Let me now um, bring up Steve, um, Stephen Kelly from uh, Charles River Associates, because you were involved in helping to try and put this data together in a picture. Um, let me ask you, building on what Nicole has just said, tell me more about some of the specific areas and particularly the issue of health system preparedness and access. Thank you, Tamsin, and thank you, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here today and to give you some more information on the information and the background that went into building this very comprehensive tracker. And these two important policy areas that you've highlighted, the healthcare system preparedness really sets the foundation for achieving optimal care. And the second for the access pathways ensures fast access to treatment. So starting with the healthcare system preparedness, we covered three metrics in this topic. Firstly, the epidemiology estimates that is so important to provide the basis for short and long-term planning. The availability of a national SMA patient registry that can ensure the healthcare system has visibility on the number of patients with SMA. And lastly, the infrastructure with regards to the assistance of centres of excellence and networks of care to ensure all patients have good physical access to treatment centres. So overall, this metric on healthcare system preparedness gives an overall goal to ensure the availability of patient level data and en enable access to centres of excellence. This is vital as SMA requires multidisciplinary care which in turn requires coordination both at the national 
and international level to avoid those disparity in care between patients. A couple of positive samples from the tracker here included the European reference networks allowing information sharing across countries and facilitating that international collaboration. Uh, centralised registries through TREAT NMD is a fantastic example of an international network having positive impact across many of the countries in scope. And lastly, countries that have a comprehensive and easily accessible national network, such as Phonimus in France, consisting of six coordinating centres working in collaboration, was a great example of achieving a green dot on that score. Moving on to the access pathways, we covered two metrics in this policy area. Firstly, looking at post-marketing authorization, early access pathways can ensure patient access to treatments as soon as regulatory approval is granted and the product is deemed safe and effective. And secondly, having specialised reimbursement and HTA pathways that are tailored for the value of rare diseases and recognised value in national assessments is fundamental. These are absolutely fundamental goals, as in countries where treatments for SMA have been approved at the regulatory level, but not reimbursed, patients diagnosed with SMA can face long delays before gaining access to treatments that may be available in other European countries. A few countries in the tracker have really adapted their approach here and allowed additional considerations of elements specific to rare diseases in their national assessments. And this has enabled accelerated approval, and that's possible in several countries to get access to new treatments, but we're still seeing a significant level of variability, uh, particularly in the uptake and the access to treatments. Thank you, Steve. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you developed the white paper and the national trackers? What, did you encounter difficulties or challenges in finding the data, accessing it, and then putting it together across the 23 countries? Because in our health data system is, is notoriously fragmented, and the Commission's got big plans for a unified European health data space. But until we've got that, how did you put together the data from the different countries? I'm sure, as you can imagine, this was a, a really challenging and a massive endeavour that has taken us, you know, the best part of a year to complete collecting this information on 11 metrics across five policy areas across 23 countries was very challenging. There was significant heterogeneity and variability in the level and the ease of access to this information. We have received great support from SMA Europe members and also Biogen colleagues from each of the markets in scope. However, every piece of information and every insight that's been captured has been confirmed and validated with public domain information. This is critical to ensure the standardization and the fairness and the accuracy of the data that's represented in those green, amber and red dots. As you can imagine, not only collecting that information was challenging, but 
being able to actually visualize that information in a user-friendly, easily digestible and impactful way uh, has been really important. So the, the website uh, provides access to both a white paper and a tracker. The white paper provides an executive summary of all of the information as well as a deep dive into each country and gives the information specific to each of those countries. And the tracker allows a high level visual, as you've seen with the dashboard, but also a level of interactivity where you're able to click on and deep dive into the specific information within your country. Overall, it's been a significant um, undertaking and the tracker shows significant progress has been made over the last few years. From a range of stakeholders, but there is still room for improvement. And now we've um, gone to this level of effort to collect this data and this information. We are hopeful that this will maintain the momentum going forward and encourage the actions to be based upon the information collected. Thank you very much, uh, Steve. And we, sh we put up on the screen there again the link so people could see the website because we do encourage them to go and have a look. You've spent a year collecting the data and putting it together and making this comparable um, process. So it's an opportunity for everyone to go in and have a look at it. Nicole, my final question to you is, now that this data has been put together and we've got this report and it's hopefully now going to be in front of policymakers, how do you think this white paper could be useful for driving policy change at EU level? Okay, so um, in this project, uh, we have formulated policy asks for each of the areas and it's a result of the study because of course we did not only want to collect data but we also want to start change or initiate change and i think all of these asks are equally important and you have them now on the screen and all of them are part of of a clockwork and missing or non-functioning parts will, of course, result that the clock is not working or it will display not the correct time. So we need all of them and perhaps even more. But nevertheless, for today, I would like to highlight two asks in particular, as they are linked quite closely to what was the original motivation of SMA Europe to become active in this area. And this is access provisions should be available to support fast patient access to SMA treatment and reimbursement pathway should consider the specifics of rare disease products to fully capture the value they deliver to rare disease patients and their carers. And secondly, treatment and care approaches should ensure equal access for all people living with SMA and their carers. And for now, I would like to speak about value and access a bit more, also from, from our perspective. And I think value for a neuromuscular disease and also in SMA, it's simplistically defined by motor skill because also 
it's where we have the validated scales, the measurements, and this defines eventually also what the primary outcomes are in the clinical trial setting. And this setting of primary outcomes in clinical trials indirectly also define where a value of a treatment lies. But certainly, and we heard it today already, people are much more than their motor skills. And we need to consider the value of a treatment, not only in terms of these outcomes, but also in terms of patient relevant outcome and its impact on the individual, for example, emotional well-being, perceived quality of life, but also concepts of slowing down disease progression in a progressive disease and stabilization need to be considered when that defining value of a treatment. In SMA, 97 of all participants in the study I mentioned before actually agreed that stabilization of their current status, whatever this is, is a first progress for them. And now to the topic of access. So in rare disease, there is often limited data available due to small populations, small study samples in clinical trials. We have fewer or no valida validated outcome measures. And eventually, all of this is causing challenges in reimbursement processes. And we actually need new solution-oriented approaches and ways that ensure rapid access decision. And this should be searched by the different stakeholders. But unfortunately, where willingness and also flexibility are not there and where governments and manufacturers are not able to find an agreement, patients potentially face long waits before a positive reimbursement decision is reached and before they can access treatment. And many of them have lost during these times functions they will never regain. Some might have lost the ability to walk, use their last finger movement they needed to write. And the reality today is that treatments are being made available for reimbursement in European countries at different times and achieving different level of initial initial access. And there remains inconsistency in access across the different European countries, as we have seen in the table. Too many, especially also adults living with SMA, are still facing significant barriers to receiving treatments. And many also have to re rely on individual funding decisions, and this often leads to limited delay and inconsistent access to innovative therapies. And so without an optimized access pathway, specifically tailored for orphan diseases, patients will always be in a weak position. And perhaps just to close uh, my presentation today, I would actually want to make 
uh, or show you a dramatic example to illustrate parts of the above. And this is the situation we are facing in Denmark. So here only children diagnosed as type 1 and type 2 SMA. This is um, some subpopulations of SMA who were not older than six, six years at the time of the decision back in 2018 have been allowed to receive treatment. And today we are facing the situation that no one above nine, nine years in Denmark is receiving treatment. Whereas across the border in Germany, for example, all patients, all types and all ages immediately were granted access after EMA approval of treatments. So can anyone here imagine how help Plusless parents are feeling the feelings of adults who were first not to dare to hope for a treatment as they have lived for decades without treatments, without this hope of a treatment, then learned that there is an approved treatment in Europe. And now finally, it's as far as uh, far away as the moon. Personally, I really think this is completely unacceptable unacceptable it's not ethical and in the end as i already highlighted it's not numbers it's not dots it's not prices but it's human lives and how can we dare play I apologize. I think we've lost the connection uh, with Nicole um, so we'll come back to her as soon as we can Nicole, I apologize, we lost the connection, but uh, thank you for that. We've had a question from the audience, and I'd like to put it um, to Stephen. Nicole has described this absolutely heartbreaking situation that the rules on reimbursement in one country can be very different from another country, and the impact that has on families. So in Denmark, it's very narrow, and only children in a very small percentage of cases get access, and in Germany, it it's much broader. And our question from the audience is set, they want to know, is this, uh, on some of these different issues, um, Thomas has asked, do you feel this is different compared to other rare diseases, or do we see these kinds of inequalities and inconsistencies right across the rare disease spectrum? Thank you, Tamsin, and it's uh, definitely a good question. Um, in short, there are lots of similarities uh, that we see across many rare diseases. Uh, however, there are also some nuances that are specific to the particular, you know, orphan disease SMA that we're looking at here. Um, particularly across rare diseases, sometimes oncology treatments are treated differently as well. But for non-oncology rare diseases such as SMA, then the the, the challenges are much more clearer and much more stronger and much more fragmented. Also within SMA, the added factors of the, the fragmentation of the, the patient subgroups, the multidisciplinary care,
Steve for giving us an answer on that and for uh, Thomas from the audience for raising a question. I'd now like to introduce a few other people who are going to join in a panel and we're going to explore some of these issues in more detail. So I'd like to invite to join us uh, Professor Maggie Walter, the Associate Professor of Neurology at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Professor Martin Cech, the Head of Department of Pharmacoeconomics at the Institute of Mother and Child in Warsaw, Poland. And of course, uh, Nicole Gusset is going to stay with us. And I'd like to introduce David Nestor, the Head of Neuromuscular Diseases for Europe, Canada and Partner Markets at Biogen. So let me start with Professor Walter. I mean, you're, you're in Germany in a country that Nicole has just highlighted has got a very broad definition of access. And so it, it really moving forward. So building on what we've just heard, how do we make sure we've got healthcare systems that are ready to deliver optimal treatment, care and infrastructure for people living with SMA? From your experience as a doctor uh, working with SMA patients, you know, can you tell us about some of the challenges they have to deal with? Well, thank you. Uh, we are in a very lucky situation in Germany since by law, every approved treatment will be reimbursed immediately and according to the label. So it won't happen that if you have a broad label that only children would be reimbursed. And I was really shocked when I read the white paper that in so many countries there's so different rules. I think it's one thing when you can't have treatment because there is none. But if there is a treatment which helps and you can't access it, I think this is terrible for the patient. So um, still, we have now a disease which is progressive throughout lifetime. Uh, the patient lose motor skills throughout uh, their life, no matter which type of SMA they have, no matter which age they are. And therefore, treatment at any um, age is crucial and uh, as, uh, early treatment is key. Uh, now we have other challenges uh, in Germany, for example, we have now patients who come with transition to the adult uh, neurologist uh, who never survived before. So uh, awareness is very important for the healthcare system to raise awareness for this disease uh, and to make people aware that there are now evolving phenotypes of the disease with uh, SMA type one patients sitting or even walking. So there's a huge change in the treatment paradigm. However, Although we have treatment which may slow down the progression of the disease or even um, almost um, cure the disease if you uh, are able to treat presymptomatically, there are still challenges for the patients, such as education in work and environment. They need changes for teaching and exam processes. They have to think about their choice of profession and they need accessible workspace. They um, have a higher financial burden than uh, other people. They need an accessible home, accessible transport, home help, paid caregivers. So there's even with uh, treatments in place, there's still uh, a huge challenge for the patients, which we must address as a society, I think. Very much, Professor Walter. And let me ask you one more question, because obviously as a neurologist working in a university hospital, you, you're involved in patient registries. And in rare diseases, obviously these are absolutely clear because we heard earlier with rare diseases, you've got a small population 
of patients, which makes it hard for clinical trials. You don't have the massive information. So can you tell us a little bit more about why patient registries are so important and what benefits patients would get, um, as well as uh, helping us to get innovation? So patient registries are really crucial for rare diseases. So uh, back in 2013, we started uh, a clinical trial for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and we needed three years to recruit patients for this trial. This was an investigator-initiated trial without a pharmaceutical company behind. Um, and we couldn't have done it with a pharmaceutical company because I would have said three years much too expensive. And uh, then within TreatNMD, the European network, treatment muscular diseases, uh, which was EU-funded, uh, the first patient registries were um, set up in 2007. Um, originally, five registries for Duchenne and SMA were planned, and now we have more than 50 uh, for both in uh, all the European countries, with a centralized registry with anonymized data uh, at the treat, uh, NMD base. And today, we would be able to recruit these patients within days to weeks, which of course makes access to clinical trials and further on to treatment uh, much easier. So with a, um, you know, you, with the registries, you, your trial readiness, so the possibility to get into a clinical trial once it's uh, set up um, by facilitating participation in clinical studies is a huge point. And therefore, patients get access to innovative therapeutic options. Uh, we, through the registries, we also inform patients about new research findings. We distribute standards of care. We do regular newsletters uh, and uh, tell patients about the uh, current clinical trials which are running and about interim results, if there are any. Patients, through the patient registries, patients get the feeling that they belong to a broader community, that they're not alone with their rare disease. And with the data the patients put into the registries, uh, they support research by expanding our knowledge on incidence, prevalence, genotype, phenotype correlations, the natural cause of the disease, and we get longitudinal data on the disease because patients are asked to update their data annually. Also with the registries, you raise public awareness um, and um, uh, it facilitates also healthcare research and assessment of disease burden uh, for the patients. In Germany and in different uh, European countries, we decided for a patient-based system. In our registry, the patients fill the questionnaire and send us their genetic report. Everything is uh, anonymized and uh, data never leaves uh, uh, from uh, our institute. Uh, to the outside, so it's absolutely safe. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Walter. Let me now bring in Professor Czech, because you were actually Under Secretary of State for Health at the time the decision was made in Poland about reimbursement of the first treatment for SMA. And your country is still performing better than some of its neighbours and even some of its Western European counterparts. What do you think other countries could learn from your experience? Uh, well, it wasn't an easy uh, task. We are not uh, in such a fortunate situation uh, as Germany having an automatic access 
to all new uh, uh, drugs, to new medicines. So uh, we are um, like in, a, in, a, in the UK system or in many, the majority of Western and also Central European countries, we go through the market access process, uh, which is mainly for the new chemical compounds, uh, patent protected. Uh, they are based on health technology assessment, uh, full uh, reports, and then negotiations with the economic committee uh, within the Ministry of Health and with uh, the minister or vice minister like myself, uh, himself or herself. Uh, leading to a positive or negative decision about reimbursement. And of course, it, it all started with a, with a need. Uh, we knew we have a couple of uh, hundreds uh, of patients uh, with SMA here in Poland. And we also uh, knew that uh, there was a, a very effective and safe uh, solution for these patients. It uh, had also a political dimension because people from Poland were emigrating to different uh, countries of Western Europe, uh, among others to France, Belgium, uh, also Germany, where they had this treatment available for their children. So we had an outflow of a group of patients having babies suffering from SMA. Uh, so there was definitely a, a political, uh, I would say, a, a political will to do it, uh, which is very important if you are sitting in the ministry. I am not a member of political party, but I felt that uh, good political wind. The second, uh, the second point uh, I would say is that you need to realize clearly that there is a medical unmet need for your patients uh, and uh, that you should do something about it. And here I would like to highlight the uh, uh, activities of the SMA uh, patients organization uh, under leadership of uh, Kasper Ruciński, uh, who was extremely active in uh, identifying patients in the talks, uh, bilateral talks with the ministry, and I uh, suppose also with the, with the producer. Uh, so uh, first, my role was also to convince the minister of health, so my boss, to um, to give the priority to um, to this disease. It has to be said that uh, rare diseases uh, at that uh, period of time were in the favorite, uh, uh, um, uh, there weren't favorite conditions for, for the ministry to consider. Why? Because, of course, they escape uh, this uh, cost-effectiveness uh, uh, threshold uh, principle. Uh, and there are many others, many challenges in assessing uh, uh, drugs for reimbursement that are used in rare diseases, orphans. And uh, uh, so, um, and the, the plan for the rare diseases wasn't uh, approved yet. Uh, it, is, it has been approved recently. So uh, in the report, when you, uh, when you were updating it, I carefully read the report. Uh, so you should state that it's already there. So I hope that access to uh, orphans would be easier in the, in, the, uh, in the future. But coming back to the, uh, to the uh, uh, history, uh, so then we had a, a, um, 
it went the normal process of HTA approval and the, the drug, uh, the first one that was available for the patients, it had a, polit a positive recommendation of the HTA agency president, but unfortunately it was conditional. Conditional meaning uh, that the price should be adjusted to be uh, preferably below the cost of the effectiveness threshold, which is at the level of 40,000 euro approximately. Um, per quality, per quality adjusted life year. And of course, it was not the case. Um, so then the negotiations came with, um, uh, with the economic committee. It's a little bit like uh, uh, Commission d'Economique in, in France, uh, but they haven't reached an agreement. So it landed on my desk. Uh, and together with the Minister of Health, uh, we started negotiations with the producer. And it has to be stressed that also um, Biogen was very flexible. Uh, so, uh, first of all, they sent a, a person who was able to make decisions uh, and to take responsibility for these decisions. Uh, we prepared for the negotiation and we had, if I remember correctly, seven rounds of very difficult, very tough negotiations with the producers. And uh, we used, um, uh, we use uh, all the risk sharing schemes uh, uh, solutions in our system. So we used uh, uh, also risk sharing and cutting mechanisms uh, here. Uh, and uh, I think that also the producers understood that we are not the richest country in Europe. Uh, and I, uh, but there were a lot of challenges. And finally, I think relatively fast, uh, looking at the market access uh, uh, processes that take sometimes uh, long months, if not years, uh, we reached uh, solutions uh, for the patients and we covered all the uh, population, all the Polish population. So uh, the patients uh, uh, who emigrated started to come back. And of course we covered uh, uh, the, ma the majority of, of patients waiting for, for, for this solution. And next steps, I'm sure you will ask about it, it was of course, okay, how can we find them? Uh, so the, the, um, uh, the, uh, all the screening tests, etc., etc. But it's, it, it's another story. So I think summing up, uh, political will, uh, um, realizing that there is unmet medical need, uh, strong negotiation skills, um and uh, and a certain level of professionalism on the side of uh, patients organization clinicians i should have mentioned that clinicians were substantial here as well to convince the minister and myself we really have an effective treatment we really can change lives of these patients because the Excellent. perception within the ministry of health sorry to say that was okay another drug which will improve mildly the situation of these patients maybe we we uh, maybe we we can't afford to to, to pay for it but it was, okay. was not the case here Thank you very much, uh, Professor Czech, and particularly giving us that fascinating insight into the political decision-making process. I'm going to now bring in David because um, uh, we'll, 
you've been working on this topic for a long time and you witnessed the launch of the first treatment for SMA patients. There are now three drugs that are approved by the EMA, but right at the beginning when the first one came on, can you tell us about that journey? And how have you seen the policy and access environment for SMA patients evolve since that first medication was brought to the market? Uh, thank you and, and good morning everyone. It's uh, it's certainly been a roller coaster uh, for the last five years, but when I look back and reflect on, on our journey, it's it's been truly amazing to see how far we've come and, and the lives of so many patients, you know, from infants, children, adolescent and adult SMA patients that have, have changed over the last number of years. And, you know, before a treatment was available, we should always think back that a diagnosis of SMA meant either an early death or a lifetime of uh, progressive disability. And, and today, infants born with SMA have a chance to do some of the normal things that we a lot of us take for granted, to, to walk, to run, to play, to be able to go to school, to have the independence that you know life brings and we all expect. Um, older children have also experienced continuous improvement and adults can also maintain precious, very, very precious motor function, you know, to a simple thing of being able to use your finger um, or voice, um, you know, what that means to these patients to live and have a, a, a specific quality of, of life. And, you know, even though there's still no cure, the lives of, of people with SMA have been transformed. Um, and I think treatment and the availability of, of a number of different treatments does allow that transformation um, uh, to the, 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 the area of SMA. So overall, it's, it's been a phenomenal achievement, um, but it doesn't stop here. And I think the complexity of, of SMA patient management continues to present many challenges in many of the European countries. And I think the tracker illustrates that for us. Um, and, and the worst thing for me is, you know, these are challenges are preventing SMA patients from accessing an optimal standard of care you know, treatment and the, the, the care that surrounds that. So, you know, while at least an SMA treatment is now available across most EU countries, the process, you know, it, it has required significant time. And again, as the tracker has identified, many adult patients still face significant barriers to receiving a treatment. Um, I think Nicole commented on, on it earlier. And really that's not acceptable in this day and age. You know, despite all the evidence that's available, about the benefit of treatment for patients not to have access and equal access across Europe uh, to an approved therapy from when that therapy is approved is really unacceptable. And it's something that we all should be striving to try and, and rectify. And, and in this context, you know, the many, many adult patients living with SMA that didn't have an appropriate diagnosis or are not even captured in the healthcare system, you know, due, due to that degenerative nature of the disease and prompt diagnosis and early intervention, um, it's crucial. You know, you know, we need to prevent the loss of, of motor neuron um, and ensure better outcomes from these uh, patients. So time is precious. You know, waiting six months, waiting 12 months, waiting a year to, um, to, to make the drug available really is, uh, you know, we talk about it in negotiations and debate and you know, but it's it's life. It's a matter of life and quality of life for these patients. So for me, we need to continue to work together to optimize access for all patients. Um, more therapies have entered the market now, as we know. Um, but unfortunately, none of these treatments can cure SMA. And we want to ensure that patients, together with the physicians as well, have a choice about what treatment they can access. There shouldn't be restrictions. 
if Professor Maggie Walter decides it's treatment A or treatment B, or to switch from treatment B to C or A to B, you know, she should have the freedom and the flexibility to discuss that with their patient and make that choice for in the best interests of the patient. Um, you know, but it's not also about just about access to treatment, as, as Stelios mentioned. Um, and with the SMA tracker, we've looked comprehensively at several areas that are key to ensure SMA patients can thrive. Um, patients require support from a multidisciplinary care team to manage a range of complications which can result from the disease. So, you know, optimal care does include things like genetic diagnosis and counseling, regular physic, uh, uh, physical therapy and rehabilitation, orthopedic care. You know, there's lots of different dis disciplines involved in this. So it's a complex disease and, and regular interaction between patients and the multidisciplinary team is crucial. And I think I, one of the things I'm really proud of with Biogen in terms of, you know, bringing the first treatment to the market, that center of excellence concept has really evolved over the last few years because new treatments brings new expectations and it helps, you know, enhance that uh, standard of care and quality of care. So, you know, the great people that we work on from uh, not just the neurologists, but within the different teams in the hospitals really have come together and has have, have really taken things to a, a new level. So we have made great advances in the last five years. Um, there's a lot done, but definitely more to do. And, and I, I feel the SMA tracker uh, is a positive thing. It can help help us navigate through the next phase of the journey. Um, it can be our compass. I would certainly like to see a lot of the orange dots turn into green and the reds to orange and even green. Um, so it's it really is something that can help us make good decisions and good choices. And, and I hope there's many different people on the, on the line here today, whether you're a patient or whether you're part of a, a patient advocacy group, that you take this and you use this information. It's really, really valuable. I, I, I went through it again yesterday for about the 10th time, but it really does, you know, hit home in your respective country, you know, what's working well, what's not so well, you know, to prioritize what we can take on. Bit by bit, we can make this better for SMA patients. And we're very proud to be part of that journey. And we're very, very committed to being a, a central part of it in the future as well. Thank you very much, uh, David. Let me now bring in Nicole, because as we've, we've ha heard a lot about the uh, different elements that work in this, and particularly the importance of having clinicians who are in a tracking and updating on the latest developments. You need political will, you need leadership. Um, Professor Czech talked about the importance of having powerful patient advocates that are able to bring the stories in front of politicians who can then recognize the unmet need. But let me ask you, in, in your opinion, does SMA receive the necessary political and policy attention? How can the EU make a difference, bring forward policy changes that would impact on the lives living, of people living with SMA? Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed the discussion today and I think there were so many important points already raised, so I'm, I'm really really happy to hear that that we are like coming from different stakeholders i think quite aligned in in what's uh, what's uh, important so uh, thank you all for that so back to your question tasmin i think actually we are facing really extraordinary times at the moment and there is a enormous innovation 
out there. It's not only in the medical, pharmacological um, setup, but also from a technical standpoint. So I think we should uh, somehow aim big and perhaps use SMA eventually also as a model. So what does it mean? I feel actually that systems and processes at the moment are not really ready for innovative medicines, treatments of the new generation, and that legal requirements are missing in some areas to advance here. And also, I think, and that's what I wanted to express also before, I think there is a link missing between the, between the requirements we have from clinical trial designs and approval to access. So I think we should really invest here more work. That means also on a, on a policy level that regulatory processes, including clinical trials, are strongly linked or better linked or integrated into reimbursement processes. So I think these two pieces of the of the puzzle need to be brought together in future and also when we would be doing that we need to prepare for for the future for the innovative treatments that will be a mix combination of medicine it can be a mix of medicine and nanotech and the, also we need to be ready especially also in rare diseases to use I think I did you we, lose we, me again? We lost you just for a second, but you're back with us. Uh, I'm, okay. You're back with us Sorry. now. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I apologize for the technical glitches this morning. Um, it, the major social networks were out for six hours yesterday. We seem to be losing people just for a minute or two, but I do apologize for that. And we'll bring Nicole back in when we can, when we see her back on screen. Let me invite you, the audience, to play your part in this. If you've got comments or questions or suggestions that you want to share with the panel, please put them in the chat and we'll bring them up uh, to, to our panelists to see what we can do. Nicole, I can see you're back now. We'd lost you for a minute. Um, I'm going to move on to a couple of other members of the panel and then I'll come back to you. Professor Cech, um, you shared with us some of the fascinating insight into the, the way that the decision was taken when you were in a policy position to take these positions and the, the multiple rounds of discussions and negotiations and the challenges. But, you know, in your view, how do we speed up access to the orphan medicines? What is the role that the new EU joint clinical assessment could play? Because we, we've seen, you know, COVID changed everything. And it has sped up the use of technology, but also countries have decided to work together and trust each other much faster in order to do these things. So do you think the EU joint clinical assessment might have an impact on speeding up access? Yeah, let me, uh, let me start with this one. I think that uh, joint clinical assessment uh, done once uh, uh, with shared responsibilities uh, uh, among the HTA bodies in member states would improve the uh, market access process a lot. Uh, why? Because it will shorten uh, the part 
uh, of HTA process that is really multiplied in the um, in the member states, and of course they are doing it differently. But then the uh, cost effectiveness and budget impact uh, will be left uh, for the decision and for the final decision about reimbursement in member states. I am a uh, frankly speaking, I am a great supporter of this joint uh, HTA action uh, in Europe. I am also a, a great supporter of um, uh, of coordinating efforts to build uh, the uh, expertise and to exchange information among uh, European countries in uh, rare diseases area. Uh, I, I, I work in one of the uh, top centers uh, uh, in Poland now, but I still see a, a great room for improvement in terms of exchanging information uh, between uh, the countries, between the systems, like building, for instance, registries together, uh, because we are uh, building the uh, the knowledge, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the collection of, 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 of data that we can then analyze. And I think that in, in rare or, and ultra-rare diseases, it is absolutely crucial to have more information about real-world uh, um, real effectiveness of, uh, of the drug. So this real-world data and real-world uh, information uh, is uh, very important in uh, granting access uh, faster. Looking at the uh, at what is going on in uh, on the Polish market, there are substantial important changes uh, that took place recently. The first one I have already mentioned it's a it's a rare diseases uh, program that is uh, approved by the uh, by the Polish government, and I hope that with the solutions um, uh, that are described, uh, they're aimed at faster access to to drugs. Uh, would be beneficial for the patients in the future. We also uh, have a medical fund regulation uh, for rare diseases and oncology, and that is a special uh, uh, special funding pathway uh, for uh, the most innovative uh, medicines that can be used in, in rare diseases area and in uh, oncology. It's, uh, it's a little bit like the British uh, idea how to, um, uh, how to address uh, these uh, challenges. So we hope that with uh, this regulation, we, we will be able to uh, reimburse faster and to shorten uh, time to market for these innovative drugs. Uh, by the way, Zolgensma, uh, the uh, advanced therapy in SMA is uh, following this pathway and it is in negotiation phase. So maybe there would be a second uh, option for SMA uh, patients available in, in Poland if, of course, they reach agreement uh, regarding the rest of the uh, uh, process. So I think that, that different solutions speeding up the, uh, the process are important here and a lot of uh, is going on in, in Poland. But I would like to see, I would like to see the European Commission role that is stronger in harmonizing these efforts. And I think that um, uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccines purchase gave us an excellent example of how this cooperation can be built on the fair basis. Uh, and if we uh, mimic somehow with alterations, of course, this process uh, in rare diseases, 
it could be an uh, enormous uh, success of European Union as an organization not to build barriers like we had barriers to treatment so you remove to western europe now the treatment is available for sma in poland we have a lot of belarusians we don't only build uh, you know walls uh, so a lot of belarusians and ukrainian and even indian and pakistanian patients uh, who are treated in poland uh, and and of course for me uh, as as a doctor as a medical doctor it's 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 a it's a great success that also these people have access to treatment but this is something that is that is really uh, uh, you know creating uh, different levels of of access among member states i know that i am talking about part of the world but in european union i think we can do a lot uh, to improve the uh, the access for uh, for for these uh, Thank you. Uh, patients in need. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Professor Czech. Let me bring in Professor Walter again, because um, we just heard from Professor Czech about the importance of real-world evidence being used for decision-making. And you play a role in the European reference networks, which, of course, were the big initiative that the EU put in place to try and make sure that patients with rare diseases could benefit from the best access to expertise across Europe. Where do you see the role of the European reference networks fitting into the messages that Professor Czech said, we, we need more evidence, real world evidence to bring it forward. What do you see as the, the key role for the ERNs here? So first, uh, the idea of the ERN is great to uh, provide cross-border expertise for rare diseases and uh, cross-border science. And I'm a member from the very start of the European Reference Network on Rare Neuromuscular Diseases, EuroNMD. However, um, so far, there is no funding for this. So all these efforts, all the specialists European-wide put into this network are for free in our free time. And this uh, is not a good concept. For, uh, for the long run. So we established, for example, different patient registries within the ERN. We established um, a transversal study group on uh, pregnancies in patients with rare diseases, a lot of cross-border healthcare discussions, and all this without funding. And I think this is absolutely ridiculous for such an important topic, and this should be definitely changed. Otherwise, um, this will not be a success. Very much, Professor Walter, with that very clear and explicit call for adequate resources to be put into the European reference networks so that they can fulfill their potential. Let me bring David Nestor in at this point, because, you know, across the area of rare diseases, there's really been amazing progress over the last decade or so. We've got, you know, better diagnostics, so you've got a shorter uh, journey from, usually because they're congenital, from birth to diagnosis, which means parents and families have access to treatments earlier. But, you know, from your perspective, how do we keep fostering innovation and addressing these unmet medical needs for rare disease patients? Yeah, well, I think first and, and, and foremost, um, the fight against rare disease is never fought alone. And it's, it's essential for us all, the stakeholders we have on the line that represent uh, many of the different groups we work with, is to you know, work in close collaboration and, and, and really commit, commit to transforming SMA and the, the lives of those patients and, and people with SMA. Um, and I think the progress that we've seen 
would not have been possible without partnership and and partnership with the community and and really I you know I should thank uh, as as well you know our partners in SMA Europe and and Eurodis etc for the role they play here because they are the champions that are out there um, uh, for the SMA community and have done a wonderful job th thus far but in terms of in regards to the future um, and the future of SMA care at Biogen we've embarked on a long term commitment. And, you know, we know SMA isn't an easy disease. There's still a lot of research that we need to do to better understand the disease and what, what is the best treatment for patients? How can we can improve the standards of care? You know, and how can we generate that supporting evidence for the, for, for the community? And, and while we work on a, on a cure, the first priority for us at the moment in Biogen is, is making current treatments even more effective. Um, and, you know, all of our efforts here are based on robust evidence. And we continue investing in studies and clinical trials that provide physicians and patients with the data that they need to support their, their choices. And we listen carefully uh, to the community. And a good example at the moment is, you know, we already know that SMA patients may, might only respond suboptimally to a treatment and, you know, hence they may need to switch to another therapy. So we're working hard to ensure we can provide the, the right evidence to support physicians again and patients with this uh, decision. I think the, the, the data issue that uh, um, my colleagues have, have alluded to earlier is also an important one. And again, in the SMA tracker, we have looked into the availability of epidemiology and clinical data. And, and in many of the countries assessed, detailed epi studies are limited. And, and look, this makes it, it's, it's hard for key stakeholders to you know, have a, the right discussion then around treatment options when you don't fully understand the epi, um, you know, and that can have an impact on how you add, uh, you know, allocate resources and, and, and prioritize things. And you can even end up with the wrong infrastructure and inconsistent management. So that's a key, a key thing that needs to change and improve getting better data. I think the situation is certainly better in countries where we do have patient registries established and they do provide a more complete data set um, you know, both, both on the, the patient population and on the clinical outcomes. And um, it really can help to identify areas of need and improvement within the particular systems in, 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 in those hospitals. Um, and in Biogen, look, we're delighted. We've, we've helped establish more than a dozen SMA registries around the world. Um, and I think this real world evidence really helps clinicians and researchers and regulatory re regulator payers, et cetera, to understand how treatments work in practice and they can come to speedier uh, conclusions and decisions. Um, I think the other thing is we're great and strong supporters of the creation of European guidelines for both the establishment and, and maintenance of disease registries. Like funding is one aspect, but again, we really need to copper fasten our, our approach and a consistent approach. And I think when the registries are built through a strong collaborative effort, we can create invaluable resource here and a consistent approach will definitely lead to better understanding of the disease and, and ultimately will improve patient patient care. Um, and again, uh, you know, EU institutions and member states can play a vital role in, in, in this area. So structural and investment funds, for instance, can help strengthen the data gathering capacities in hospitals right across Europe. And then you have programs such as the Innovative Medicines Initiative and the European Reference Net Network, as you touched upon, you know, can really help standardize the definition of outcomes and data collection and, 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 and how these systems connect together, like sharing of that information and the interoperability of the systems is, 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 is crucial as well. 
Um, because again, we are resource pressured. Health systems are resource precious and we need to help people to engage with each other in a seamless, uh, a, a seamless manner. And the last two points I'd make is, you know, on a more broad uh, approach, digital health offers great opportunities for patients with rare diseases. And in Biogen, we're currently exploring personalized digital healthcare solutions that can enable patients, including those with SMA, to remotely self-assess and monitor their neuromuscular functions using their smartphones. Um, we're also really exciting partnership with Apple to develop digital biomarkers. And again, that can help monitor uh, cognitive performance in, in high-risk populations. And, and over time, and hopefully potentially, we can identify earlier signs of, of symptoms and using the Apple Watch iPhone. So, you know, digital is really transforming us. And I think we've all been affected by that this last, last couple of years. So I think there's a really bright future. Um, for us all in SMA and Bajan, we're delighted to be, be part of that and, and support it. Thank you, David. Let me now bring uh, Nicole in because we're about to close the panel, but I'd like to leave the last word to the patient. We've heard about the interesting developments there. We've just heard there about new technology and other tools. What is it that makes you hopeful for the future of people living with SME? And on the other hand, what's the source of worry? What's the, the big challenge that you'd still like to see dealt with? Thank you. Thank you, Tasmin. I try again. So um, I hope it will work this time. <laughs> so, yeah, indeed, I, I, I just said it and, and, and David also uh, hinted to it. It's exciting times. It's innovation around us and we need to to be prepared for all what is coming up. I think uh, it was also being said that partnership collaborative approaches are certainly very key to 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 yeah to achieve what we want to achieve and also everything should be evidence based driven so that's that's for sure and all this developments uh, this innovation this uh, understanding the relevance of paid partnership actually makes me very hopeful for the future but i also realize that we need to work a lot to achieve all of it. And I know that we need to, to, to start working, working on, on a full transparent communication. Also, I see, especially in SMA, um, I, I'm a bit worried about managing expectations so that we are clearly communicate to the community, but also to the stakeholders, that there is still uh, quite some knowledge gaps and that we need systematic knowledge about treatment, about best care, about medical equipment, about assistive devices. And we need to be able, uh, all of us, to differentiate between the facts and the the non so much facts. So I think, um, yeah, it's important. And it's, it, it, it's, it, it, it really fills me with hope to see all these therapies that are also already reality, but also the ones that are potentially coming in futures. But we also need to communicate that those are probably not miracle cures. But and they cannot turn back the clock of damage that's already been done in a progressive disease. But still, stabilization is a first success. And um, 
yeah there, there is many questions in my head now that that will uh, that are source of worries but also source of hope so i hope i really hope that we also through this work that we have done now in this project and hopefully others will follow that we can bring the community and all the stakeholders together and then just work towards um yeah towards the the future in the end thank you very much nicole for that message giving us the the important challenge to work together to achieve change and improve things and as you said you know if you have a progressive disease there needs to be a sense of realism we still don't have a cure but there are opportunities to stabilize and therefore contribute to quality of life so a warm thank you to everyone on our panel to professor walter professor check to nicole and to david and i'm going to close this panel and i'm now going to introduce someone again from the european parliament MEP Tomislav Sokol, also from the EPP group from Croatia. I know he's been listening attentively to this. Um, Tomislav, you will have heard hope, you will have heard despair, you will have heard ambition, you will have heard a sense of pragmatism. But most of all, the message that Europe can do more, should do more, and that collectively we can ach achieve huge impact on the quality of life of patients and their families living with SMA. So I pass this over to you to take it forward. Thank you very much. And it, this was definitely very interesting to, uh, to, to hear because this is a disease which is a rare disease. But uh, if you look at rare diseases in general, we can see that they are not rare after all. So there are millions of people who European on European level and of course this is this is one of the especially hard hard diseases with very serious uh, consequences so so definitely requires policy action uh, when we discuss uh, uh, when we discuss issues like this related to healthcare I usually do not like to speak in general terms like we ought to do this or we ought to do that but really focus on what we as policymakers on European level can do with the instruments that we have at our, at our disposal. And, and I will try to really uh, focus uh, and emphasize these aspects. When you speak of healthcare, of course, what the, the usual thing that is mentioned when you speak of European Union action is the lack of competences. So we know that healthcare is primary and national competence, while so European Union can support and uh, help member states resolve problems which they cannot resolve by themselves. But I think that especially rare diseases are one of these areas where member states cannot resolve problems by themselves, they need help from the European level. And this is especially the case in the smaller member states, like my member states, where we have an even bigger problem of uh, having uh, resources, health, uh, experts who can deal with some, some uh, types of rare diseases. And in many cases, we, uh, countries like mine, like Croatia, do not have the, 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 the necessary expertise to deal with some of the rare diseases at all. So we need common European action, common European, common European uh, uh, policies uh, to resolve these problems. So when we speak of uh, the issues, I will try to focus on several, several of them. So, and some of them have already been mentioned. So one is the differences in reimbursement. So there are, we know that the social security systems, health, health insurance systems are different across member states. And European Union cannot harmonize this. So we cannot impose by, by way of legislation one common standard set of health treatments which need to be covered by the national health insurance system. So me member states uh, have to resolve these problems by themselves. 
However, we have resources which may, and the instruments on new level, which may help patients access best possible healthcare in the European Union uh, in general. And the best instrument for this is the cross-border healthcare directive. So we know that cross-border healthcare directive gives patients the rights to access health treatments which uh, which are not available at their own home system uh, if they cannot get adequate treatment at home. So if you cannot get adequate treatment for a certain disease, especially rare disease in your country, you're entitled to get this treatment in another member state to be covered by your own health insurance. This is very important. A lot of patients are not aware of this, but this entitlement exists. This is this is protected by the European uh, Cross-Border Healthcare Directive and Social Security Coordination Regulations. So we have two, two EU pieces of legislation which actually guarantee patients the right to access best possible treatments uh, anywhere in the EU if they cannot get these treatments available at home, provided that these treatments are covered by legislative definitions of what is covered by the national system. But these, these legislative definitions are very broad and they cover more or less anything. So this entitlement exists. However, there are still big problems. On uh, the, pro the main problem is that this system is not very well known to patients, that there is a lot of administrative bureaucratic procedures that patients need to uh, undergo, and if they use the cross-border healthcare directive, they have to pay upfront for the treatment and then ask for reimbursement afterwards from their own home system, which is a big problem, obviously, for patients who do not have money to pay upfront for the for the treatment cost. So what I have proposed, and this has, and this is what EPP. Uh, uh, and this is and this is what the, my political party, the EPP, my political group in the parliament, has proposed as part of the amendments uh, for uh, for Europe's beating cancer plan. But this can also be applied in other areas of healthcare. Is that uh, the patients in these cases, when they can, when, when their own national experts say that they can, that they, they, they can give, that they can be provided with adequate treatment at home. Which is, a, which is the usual problem, that they're entitled to second opinion. Because what happens is that in many cases, experts in, in the home state, in the state of insurance, say, yes, but we can provide adequate treatment, even though better treatment is available abroad. In these kinds of cases, what we are, what we advocate for is that patients can get a second opinion for a foreign expert who will then say whether the best possible treatment is, at the, is in their home state or it can be provided somewhere in another, in another member state. So this is so this so 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 this is the so this is so this is this is the first point, first point and the second point is to really simplify the cross the reimbursement procedures that already exist because in most cases patients get to other to get prior authorization this takes a lot of time uh, the rules are pretty unclear so our idea is to really simplify these procedures and simplify these 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 prior authorization mechanisms so the patients do not have to face so, so much bureaucratic administrative hurdles when they want to access treatment abroad. So this is uh, this is our first initiative. The second initiative that I would like to mention is the, the so-called transparency directive. This this directive regulates procedures for introducing new medicines, new drugs, new uh, new new advanced treatments into national reimbursement systems, international health insurance packages. And this, this transparency directive is more than 30 years old, and it's not really up, up to date with the current situation. So we, I believe that we need the new transparency directive, which will completely redefine how these procedures of introducing new medicines into national health insurance packages work. So this is, so this is, so this is something which, that, that we also strongly advocate for. Also, the HTA was mentioned, the HTA regulation, it is very important, but unfortunately it has been pr uh, pretty watered down so, so far, because, and what is very important is that it does not cover cost-effectiveness analysis. 
which I think is a big problem. And I think that this HTA regulation, this, H, this common European HTA system needs to be strengthened. It needs to be improved if you really want to have to have a real, real common European system of, of health technology assessment, especially because of these big differences that exist across member states. There is also orphan drugs legislation. We have orphan drugs legislation on the European level, which has which has uh, really facilitated introduction of new medicines and the new and the new technologies into into healthcare systems. But this is also something that we need to discuss further whether it needs uh, to be updated to really to facilitate even more the uh, re clinical research and also investments into new uh, new treatments for orphan uh, for orphan drugs for rare diseases. And finally, and finally, the infrastructure. The infrastructure is a big problem, especially I already mentioned the lack of workforce in my country, but also the lack of uh, not just clinical expertise, but the equipment and the facilities that we need to treat rare diseases like the SMA. So what so what what we are saying is that we need to use EU funding, EU budget to, to really reduce these differences that exist across the European Union. So we cannot have first, uh, uh, first and second order citizens that we that we currently have. That is one of the big problems. And if you look at health outcomes, possibilities to get health treatments, top uh, top uh, advanced health treatments across the EU, in some, there are enormous differences if you compare, for instance, Germany or the Netherlands on one side and Croatia, Bulgaria, Romania on the other. What is important is that, is that we really have funding at our disposal to reduce these differences. So we have first the EU for Health program, which is 12 times bigger than was the previous health program in the previous seven-year uh, in the previous seven-year budget. So in the previous in the previous seven-year budget, EU health EU health EU health program was around 450 million euros. Now it is 5.1 billion euros. We in the parliament wanted even more. We wanted more than 9 billion euros. But you know, but the problem is that uh, if you want to adopt legislation, you also need to approval of the member states. Some member states didn't want this, so we, we needed to strike this compromise. So instead of 9.4, it's 5.1 billion euros, but still 12 times bigger than it was before. But apart from you for health, we have one even bigger source of funding for health infrastructure and health workforce, and that is the EU cohesion policy. So the, the aim of EU cohesion policy is to reduce differences in terms of development across the different regions of the EU. And, and, this, and these differences in development obviously also affect healthcare. And if you look at health outcomes, you can see that the least developed regions in Europe, especially rural regions, have much worse health outcomes than the most, most developed urban regions, etc. So, we, so the idea is to use the cohesion policy, which was already used partly for this in the previous seven years, in the previous seven-year budget, to reduce these differences. This is, and this is something that I'm also strongly advocating for, and I have been appointed a rapporteur on, a, on, a, on this topic in the Committee on Regional Development in the European Parliament, with, with uh, the topic of which is, is how to use this cohesion policy EU funds to reduce these differences. So to sum up, so we have regulatory means at our disposal to, to facilitate access to top quality healthcare for patients with rare diseases in the EU. We have funding available for to fund, fund health workforce and health infrastructure in those areas of EU which need it. So we have to get to work and really have to make all these changes that are, are at this, our disposal. Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much, MEP Sokol. And we've had a number of comments come in as you were talking, uh, different patients and their families raising some of the practical challenges that they've experienced of trying to exercise the rights that you set out, which, as you say, exist in various pieces of legislation, but they need to be streamlined and simplified and made more accessible. We welcome your engagement and commitment in, in the European Parliament in moving to make that clearer and more uh, easy for patients to use. It's also extremely helpful to hear um, both the, the political commitment again to solidarity and this focus on using all of the instruments at the disposal of the EU to level up and address inequalities. You rightly mentioned that we now have 12 times more money to deal with health at European level than we had before. But even that is a drop in the ocean compared to the way that budgets are dealt with at national level. But the cohesion policy, as you say, that's a third of the EU budget, and it's specifically designed to tackle inequalities. So if you look at the data from the SMA tracker, and I remind it for you to go onto smatracker.eu, and you can see there are countries where you've got lots of green dots and lots of orange or red dots, the cohesion funds are a way of giving countries access to the kinds of money they would need to invest in equipment, in clinical research, in getting the health workforce there so that all patients across Europe can have access to the best of what's available. And I'd like to say a warm thank you to everyone who joined us for this webinar. It's been a really interesting morning. We started with a political message from uh, an MEP who told us about the value of the quality of life for everyone and looking at patients with SME in the whole of their context, including their employment rights, their social rights, their ability to participate in society. We explored over the last hour and a half some of the challenges. We heard some of the optimism and hope that exists. And I think the final message I want to leave you with is that the last 18 months have reminded us, like never before, both of the resilience of our health systems, but of our shared vulnerability. And if nothing else, it has made it very clear at the highest level of all EU policymaking why health matters. And if we can harness the political focus and attention that exists on the pandemic and broaden it out to making sure that all of the EU instruments are designed to support well-being and to support quality of life for European citizens and patients, we would expect to see a much better life for patients with SMA and rare diseases and generally. So I leave you with that ambition. Let's make the EU have a positive impact on the life of patients so that they can all participate more fully. Thank you all for your time. Please go to the smatracker.eu website to find out more about what's happening in your country and then to advocate for better results. This event was brought to you by Biogen and SMA Europe. It was supported with a knowledge partner of Charles River Associates. And I'm here in the Euractiv studio in Brussels, the media partner. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>